I want to cover one one other thing, and before we get into the message, and it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a serious thing, and so I want to I want to address it. Um, and uh, my you know my Facebook feed exploded this this um, this past week. Uh, and the only, you know, the only person on earth who cares more about Facebook than the U.S. government is Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL. Um, but uh, but the, there's a lot of things going on in our world and in our nation. And if we're not careful, we, we presume upon the privilege that Christians have had in this great nation for the last couple hundred years. We assume that things have to be this way. And the reality is that for the vast stretch of human history, Bible believers, not just Christians, not in a general sense, I'm a Christian, but Bible believers have been in the minority of every society they have been a part of, from the Roman Empire uh, all the way through to, I mean, the United States in 2015. So it should not surprise us that the world system is swayed by things that make no sense to us as Christians. That should not surprise us. And it should not make us angry. Let me tell you the last thing that the United States of America needs, and that is angry religious people. What, What we as the followers of Christ need to understand is the way that this nation got to be the way it is, or the way it was, In 1776, let me tell you a little story. It has nothing to do with the sermon. But I'll tell you a story because it's about my new hero. Um, I have a new hero, and his name was Hezekiah Smith. And you say, what? My dad actually said to me, was he Jewish? I'm like, no. He was a Baptist. Um, Hezekiah Smith was a Baptist minister in the 1760s in Haverhill. Um, I actually know the guy that pastors the church that he started in 1765. Um, it still exists and it's still preaching the gospel. First Baptist Church of Haverhill, Massachusetts. Hezekiah Smith got to New England in 1764. There were 50 Baptist churches in the whole region. Forty of them were Boston South. Most of them were in Rhode Island. Because Rhode Island was started by a Baptist. The Great Awakening had just come. Enormous numbers of people had come to Christ. They had been religious. They had been Christian. They had gone to church. But they had not known that Christ, they had to accept Christ as their Savior. And then they had gone back to their churches. And Hezekiah Smith showed up, a, a, um, a graduate from Princeton University who could not, the greatest thing about him, could not manage to keep a horse he lost his horses all the time. I read in his journal, and the guy is like, and then I had to cross back over the river because I lost my horse. I lost five days. I mean, this is just his story. He's always losing horses. Um, Hezekiah Smith, uh, in 1765, he came to Haverhill, Massachusetts at the invitation of the pastor, the interim pastor of uh, West Parish Congregational Church in Haverhill. And he stood up in the pulpit of that church, and he preached, if you're a follower of Christ... You need to be baptized as a representation of that. And this is something nobody had ever heard. They just never heard it. They were Christian because that was what they were. They, that was how it worked. We're, we're British citizens, therefore we're Christians. It had, always been, it had always been about their identity. It had not been about identifying with Christ. And he stood up and he preached. And um, the guy that actually asked him to come uh, was baptized. And a number of the people in the church were baptized. And they formed the First Baptist Church of Haverhill. When he died in 1805... 
there were over 300 Baptist churches in New England, and he had started most of them. He had baptized most of the people that were part of it. Hezekiah Smith, in, as soon as he became a, the pastor in Haverhill, uh, immediately volunteered to serve with the militia, the Massachusetts militia, under a guy named Knox, Colonel Knox. Served with the militia for 10 years until the battles of Lexington and Concord. He was there. He was encamped in Somerville. During the course of the revolution, he traveled with the Massachusetts militia until he was discharged in 1781 with a personal letter from General George Washington. Washington died in 1800, Hezekiah Smith gave the benediction, the funeral. This is how influential this guy was. 1783, we've got our independence from Britain. George Washington was in awe of the fact that Hezekiah Smith and the Baptist ministers of the colonies had rushed to aid the soldiers of the Continental Army when no one else would because they believed that they needed to serve the people. In 1789, the United States passed their their constitution and Massachusetts buckled. The the Baptists in Massachusetts and Virginia were very opposed to the constitution because it did not explicitly guarantee freedom of religion. And the, the Continental Congress guaranteed them that if they ratified, if they voted to ratify the constitution, they would create a set of amendments that would guarantee basic rights, what we call the Bill of Rights today. The, very, the First Amendment, and most of you are familiar with it, and if you're not, you should be. First Amendment consists of two things, two clauses, uh, the Establishment Clause and the Exercise Clause uh, that deal with uh, religion, that Congress will make no law against any establishment of religion, and it will not prohibit the exercise thereof. Those two clauses were written by an Episcopalian named James Madison. They were written because Madison, like Washington, had learned to respect and love the Baptist ministers who served the soldiers during the Revolution. And they suggested to him that they did not want to be a part of a state-sponsored religion. They wanted the freedom to worship. The man who made the motion on the grounds of, and you'll love this guy, his name was Ayers. All right? Um, the man who made the motion on the floor of the Continental Congress to accept James Madison's verbiage for the First Amendment, the Establishment Cause, was a member of Hezekiah Smith's church who had been converted because Smith spent the time and energy to love his family in Dedham, Massachusetts. You want to change the world, you want to change America, the answer is not to be angry and not to be political. There is only one answer, moral morass, that we find ourselves in. And it is not ethics, and it is not saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school, and it is not forcing people to accept Christian ethos. It is the proud an undeniable proclamation through word and deed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what our nation, that is what made our nation what it is. Baptists like Hezekiah Smith, and there were others, Methodists, and I'm not saying that they were the only ones, but the Baptists used to be on the forefront of compassion and grace and love and duty and devotion 
and honor for those that they did not agree with. And they stood with people they did not agree with to guarantee the freedoms of those they disagreed with. If you want to reverse the dynamic that's driving our culture, the answer is not who you elect as president. Everybody running for president is the only political statement I make about this. Everybody running to president, except for yours truly. I got a Facebook page, DeVitro2016. Is a lying politician goon. You need to realize that. The only one that isn't is an egotistical, ignorant billionaire. All right? The answer is not who we put in office. The answer is not changing the Supreme Court. The answer is not Congress. The answer is the people of God getting off of our religious backsides and preaching the gospel through word and deed. And you won't see the transformation in your lifetime. But you'll know that you did what the Holy Spirit led you to do. That's all I have to say about about the situation of our world right now. That's all I'm going to say about it. And you won't hear me say anything from the pulpit again. Pulpit. It's a stealth pulpit. It's so transparent you can't see it. Now with all of that said, I want to invite you to go to the scriptures. Book of First Peter. What is the gospel to the apostle Peter? What significance did it have? What meaning did it have? For him. And I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. The passage that we read this morning, I'm not going to reread it, but I just want to journey through it with you for a little bit. What Peter believed that Christ had saved him out of. Peter was a faithful Jew, Peter was a good guy. I mean, he let his mother-in-law live with him. How good a guy did he have to be? He had, right. Uh, amazing Peter right there. Um, you know, and, and not only did he let her live, this is the most amazing thing about it. No offense to mothers-in-law. All right, Most of you are great mothers-in-law. Um, just ask your sons-in-law. Uh, but uh, uh, not only did she, he let her live there, when she got sick, he called Jesus in. I know plenty of guys go, my mother-in-law is sick. Let's go. Um, anyway, so Peter, Peter is, was a good guy when Jesus met him. He wasn't a bad guy. He was providing for his family. He was taking care of things. And, and Jesus worked on him and worked on him and worked on him. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, something clicked in Peter's mind. And, and then Peter found forgiveness in Jesus. And, and he was transformed. And he became the leader of the church. And he became the number one voice. You read the first half of the book of Acts. And the voice you hear over and over and over again is the voice of Peter. Peter, Peter is the one who speaks for the apostles. Peter is the one who stands up and gives these messages. Peter is the one who starts healing people. Talk about an extraordinary leap. Um, Peter is out and he's teaching and he starts running into people who are lame and sick and dead. All right? And Peter goes, well, Jesus did it and we're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and so we're going to do this thing. And, and he just he's, he's engaged. Peter is this extraordinary person. At the end of his life, reflecting back on the gospel, Peter shares some insight. And it's so important that I made a PowerPoint. Don't put it up yet. All right. 
That's how important this is. I made my own note. We read this verse, these verses that we read this morning, and there are just a few things that I want to tell you, share with you. And I want to share with you specifically that they are a difference between self-centered holiness and divinely centered holiness. Everybody thinks that they've got holiness down. Everybody does. Now, now you might you might confess and say, well, I'm not that good and I wish I were better and blah, 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 blah. Here's the deal. If you wished you were better and you really believe that you were, if you really believe that you could be better, then guess what you will be? Better. Often we tell people, well, I could be better. That's just a cop out for I am who I am. I'm not going to change. Right? But here is, here is the Apostle Peter laying something down. And we read the passage at the beginning. Um, but he says this. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially. So what is he saying? Right there he is saying, if your standard for righteousness and holiness is not your opinion, but the father who judges impartially. He says, so if you're looking to be saved by God instead of be saved by yourself, there are some things you need to know. Now keep in mind, the verse before, he had said, Be holy, for I am holy. He had quoted a line from the law. So here we go. He says, If you call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. He says, If you're going to call on the God who judges impartially based on your deeds, you need to live in fear. fear. I want to put this table up now. Um, and we're just going to start. If you really want to write this down, you can. All right. Difference between self-holiness and divine holiness. Between self-holiness and divine holiness. Uh, the difference between uh, I look at God and I say to God, I'm going to do what it takes in order for me to please you. And somebody who comes to God and says, God, tell me what I need to do to honor you. There's a difference between those two attitudes. A difference between God, tell me what, how good I need to be in order to be saved from whatever scenario I'm talking about being saved from, and the attitude of saying, coming to God and say, God, tell me what I need to do in order to be with you. To be in communion with my Creator. That's divine holiness. To be in communion with myself is selfish holiness. To be in communion with the Creator is divine holiness. So I want to just look at some things the way he describes things. The very first thing he describes our selfish holiness as is an exile. It's exile. He says, um, if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one deed, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. He says, you just go ahead and chalk it down. If you are basing your holiness on your own ability and your own deeds, you are living your your life outside of where you belong. That's what exile means. You're outside of where you belong. Now, how does he contrast that? He says, but you should know, in verse 18, knowing, there's little changes in here that English is hard, knowing that you were ransomed. From the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. So you can live in exile outside 
of where you belong, or you can accept that God has ransomed you and brought you out of the futility and the emptiness of exile and selfish righteousness and brought you into an inheritance from God. So you can be exiled, that's selfish holiness. I get to do, if I do the, everything right, God will honor me. He says, that's exile. That's outside the stream of God's grace. But if you accept that you have been ransomed, you are a sinner, and God, in His amazing and tremendous glory and grace and peace and love, has offered to pay the penalty of all that sin to bring you into the place you belong. We were not created for destruction. We were created for joy. We were not created for sadness and pain and death. We were created for an eternity with our Creator. And that's why sadness and pain and death and destruction, that's why those things are so hard for us. We're not built to handle them. He says, you could be, are you, are you exiled or are you ransomed? And then he says, he describes it as futile. He says selfish holiness, self-centered holiness is futile. It is empty. It is pointless because you can't lift yourself up by your bootstraps no matter how hard you try. Every time somebody uses that phrase, that phrase makes no sense to me whatsoever. I lifted myself up by my own bootstraps. You can't do that. You're lifting, it doesn't, you can't lift yourself up. You're it doesn't work. Something else has to lift you up. Now, if you want to say, I jumped out of the quicksand, okay, but I lifted myself up out of my bootstraps. You, you know, if you lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know what? You wind up on your backside. That's what happens. All right? You can't lift yourself by your shoestrings. Try. All right? It doesn't work. And it is futile to try to, to obtain holiness by my standards. Look at what he says. He says, knowing that you were, verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I'm going to come back to that, but look in verse 20. He was foreknown. Who? Who was foreknown? Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. You can be futile, you can try to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, or you can accept that God foreknew and God predestined that Christ would save you by His righteousness, not by yours. See, that's awful harsh and narrow-minded. Yes, it is narrow-minded. Narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leads... It. No, it's not the wide gate. We're not headed down the easy road. It's the hard road. It's the narrow road that leads us to Christ. And so we can be futile or we can accept that He was foreknown. That from eternity past, God had intended, in some way that we do not understand, He knew all of your failures and fallings, and He, in His infinite, infinite being and nature and grace and justice and mercy and all of these things mixing together, has created some way that grace sufficient to overwhelm and overcome your sin can be placed upon you and you can be saved. Somebody said to me, what are you saved from? I'm saved from sin but I'm saved from me. 
I am saved from what, what I make myself that I might be what God makes me. So you can be futile or you can for, be foreknown. He says you can be purchased with silver and gold. Now who of you can think of some moments with, in Peter's life where silver and gold become a part of the story? There's a reason this phrase pops into his head as he's writing this. There's a moment in the book of Acts when he is approaching the temple and a lame man cries out to him for alms and he says, I ain't got no money. That's how Peter really talked. I ain't got no money. He didn't care about double negatives and poor contractions. He said it in Aramaic, so it was, I ain't got no money. Uh, But but it's still, um, he says, "I, I have nothing, but what I have is Christ. There's another moment Um, When Simon the sorcerer tries to buy the Holy Spirit off of the disciples. Right? So he says, it's not purchased with silver and gold. It's not purchased by your own capacity. I told somebody, somebody posted on Facebook this week, it was great. There are like 465 billion, uh, or 465 billionaires in America. How has not one of them become Batman yet? But the reality is that, that we think we can buy anything. Silver and gold is enough, right? Is it, why is there a song in my head? Silver and gold. What is that from? All right. It's from something. I don't know. Uh, you, sh- you sure? For some reason, I think it's from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, you guys are all getting highbrow Broadway stuff. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Um, so, so the, uh, yeah, that shows my, my culture. Uh, but, the, but we, we look at it and we say, well, maybe I can buy it. Maybe if I accumulate enough resources. And divine holiness says, no, purchase not with perishable things, verse 18, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Saul and his best friend Jesus and his death and his shedding of blood giving of his life, what what Peter saw was a Passover lamb without blemish or spot. Given for those who did not deserve it, who could not understand the meaning of it. I, I think this image was burned in Peter's mind because they had observed the Passover. They had eaten the, the lamb with Jesus. Then he became the lamb. And I think it just sits in his mind. It sits in John's mind as well. It's, it's, it's just this image. It's not about silver and gold. It's about blood. It's about life. It's about uh, the darkest, cruelest, most terrible thing we could ever possibly do to another human being. And God the Son took it on himself that we might be saved. I think this is what breaks Peter. I think when Peter looks across, if you know the story, Peter denies Jesus and and after the third denial, he looks across the courtyard and Jesus looks at him. The word is emblepo, that, that Jesus looks into him. That Jesus can see everything that's going on in Peter's mind. And Peter realizes, oh my goodness, he's going to go through with this. He's not going to stop them. He's going. The, the, what, what is going on? And inside Peter's mind, I, I can almost guarantee, and I could be wrong, and he could correct me when they get to heaven, but I think in Peter's mind, all he saw was the Passover lamb. 
oh my goodness, this is what this is about. This is what this moment was about. This is what all of our history has been about. This is what our faith and, and, and our, our religion as Jews has been all about. It's about him going, the lamb going to the slaughter. It's not about silver and gold. It's not about the perishable Perishable things such as silver and gold. He uses it again. He says this. He says in verse 22, Since you have been born again. Word he borrows from John. But since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, not of something that can die, but of imperishable seed, imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. See, anything we as men and women create, it will die. We cannot create perpetual motion machines. Eventually entropy takes over and the machine stops. We have not figured out a way to 100% renew energy, no matter what Chevy says in the Volt commercials. All right. Um, eventually energy wears down. Batteries die. Systems deteriorate. The entire universe is winding to a stop. Now it's winding on a scale of billions of years, but it is happening. Entropy is a reality. Uh, energy goes into a state of inusability. This This is the way that things are. No matter what we create or build, no matter how long it takes, eventually everything made by man perishes. It eventually fails. But the eternal living Word of God does not fail. It should not surprise you that the government of the United States winds to entropy. Human institution. I saw the other day, I posted on Ryan's thing, a picture of Jesus handing the Constitution to, Tom, to George Washington, or Declaration of Independence. That irritates me to no end. All right? Jesus was not involved in the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Okay, It's a great document, but it ain't divine. Eventually, all man-made things die. Christ is imperishable. He tells a, a poem. I love this this poem. It's one of the very first passages of scripture I had to memorize as a as a young person. And I memorized it out of the King James Bible. So reading out of this one is a little bit different, but all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains uh, one of my favorite songs, and it's not in our hymn book, is a song called The Bible Stands. It says, The Bible stands though the hills may crumble. It will firmly stand though the mountains tumble. The, the reality is everything about our world will die. And if we seek holiness that is devoted from my desire and my ability to obtain God's righteousness, we might do well for a while, but eventually the system will deteriorate and all it takes is one failure and we are no longer holy. But if I put my faith and trust in the living word of God, it can never fail. It remains forever. You say, why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God and that it is, it is accurate and you believe it's inspired and you believe it's the revelation of God? Why do you believe that? Is it because of something you learned in seminary? I haven't learned anything in seminary. But um, what, what I be- the reason I believe it is because the Apostle Peter believed it. Because Jesus believed it. Because the Apostle Paul believed it. That's why I believe it. You say, can you prove the Bible is the Word of God? Can you provide quantifiable evidence? No, 
but I can show you lives transformed by the eternal message of the gospel. I can show you uh, abusers turned into loving husbands. I can show you marriages restored. I can show you addicts freed. I can show you people's bodies healed. I can show you lives transformed. I can show you new life where there was only death. I can show you joy where there was only net weeping. And that's sufficient. Because any kind of help or comfort I might provide as a human being pales in comparison to the eternal Word of God. This ties to the last thing that you need to know, and that is that human righteousness is fading. It is failing. It is dying. Over and over, my degree is in church history. I know this. Christian institutions die. They, they fail. They start out well and then they get corrupted and then they become a mess and then before too long they become dictatorships and then they decay and die. And God always raises up something new. He always raises up another moment. He always raises another expression of His Spirit. There's always another group that stands up and says the Bible stands. And we'll stand on that. When all of the rest of this thing fails, we will hold to this. And over time, that group rises and is powerful and amazing, and then they start to fade, and God brings another group. And this will continue until the coming of Christ. It, it just will continue. You say, do you believe He's coming? I absolutely do. Do I think He's coming anytime soon? Look, my grandfather who passed away in February, he used to say like this. He goes, I, I live like Jesus is coming tomorrow. I work like He's not coming in my lifetime. We just continue and move. But, but our human institutions will fade. But the gospel will live forever. The word of God will live forever. Long after my body has decayed into the atomic material that it is and it becomes something organic that your great-grandchildren will eat and that's disgusting. Because I don't want my body sealed in some vault where it can be preserved for all time. If I can get away with it, I want my wife to put me in a cardboard box and bury me in the backyard. I want my body, the, the, the cells and pieces of this body to break down and join in the creation and, and the part and the cycle. It's circle of life. Uh, the, uh, I, wanted to get, I wanted to be a part of that because I, that's going to just make you know, what God is going to do when he resurrects me even more extraordinary. It's going to be fa- fantastic. I'm not, I'm not concerned about it. I want to be a part of this, the, the thing that God is doing. The gospel will live forever. It'll live long after Eric DeVitro is dead. It'll live long after you're gone off the face of the earth. It will continue. And I want to leave you with this one big idea. There's always one big idea, and that is this. This is good news. It is good news that we don't have to rely upon the government to to make us good enough for God. It is good news that I don't have to rely upon your opinions uh, on whether I will be with the Lord or not. It's good news that we don't have to base what we know on, on some kind of human institution with rules and regulations, but rather we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lord of lords and King of kings. And He said that if you come unto Me, I will give you rest. He said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. 
The, the book of Acts, that Luke, the author of Acts, says there is no other name given under heaven and earth by which men may be saved. The good news is we don't have to rely on religion. We don't have to rely on human institutions. We can put our faith and trust in the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and died and took our sins upon Him and then raised from the dead three days later and sits now on the right hand of God. And I believe with all that I am and all I will ever be, this is the truth, the only truth that dominates and controls and guides my life. And if you want to transform the world, you begin with the gospel. You begin with sinners transformed by the presence and power of the eternal Son of God. Without that, there is no hope. The Apostle Paul said, if there is no resurrection of dead, we of all people are to be pitied. The Apostle Peter lived his life believing this truth. Tradition says he died crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like his Savior. And the Romans had such respect for him. This is, this is something you don't often hear about this story. They had so much respect for Peter because of his compassion and devotion to the people of Rome that they honored his request not to die in the, in the same way as his, his Savior. And so they turned his cross upside down. So that he would, he, that was his last request. What would be your last request? My last request would be for a giant bowl of pasta. At this point, there's no reason to count carbs, right? Uh, as Jack, Jack said to me, he says, you know, if the end of the world is coming, you and me in a cigar shop. I said, At this point, if they're coming for you and they're going to execute you, might as well. <laughs> you know? The reality is, the reality is, his last wish was, I still want to honor Christ. Devoted to Him. If we want to see the world change, we've got to be devoted to Him. Talk about it all the time. Last week, I led you in a prayer. Right? I don't know if you remember, but the prayer was the, the shield of uh, Patrick's breastplate. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise. That's who we are. That's who we are. We should live to who we are. We should be who we are. Let me invite you in a word of prayer. Father, if there are those who are here who have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that your Spirit has been at work or that we would come to you. Lord, those who are Christians, who are believers, Lord, I pray that we would come to you. We would sort through all the garbage and junk of our lives and set it all aside and come before the cross. And we would renew our devotion to the gospel. We would set aside the things that the world say are important and and are not really, and we would be devoted to you. Father, I am thankful beyond all measure for a congregation that has, has embraced the idea of encountering Christ and journeying together. 
Lord, difficult times call for us to rise. Rise and, and speak the Gospel. To no longer be intimidated by the voice of the majority. To know that it might cost us our lives and still to rise. Help us to follow the old fisherman. His devotion to Christ. Pray this through Christ Jesus our Savior.